Uh, we're going to continue the thought process, asking questions surrounding the event of death. Now, I think probably, man, I should have thought through this a little more, but probably the most frequently asked questions I have surround the matter of death. And people just want to know more. I mean, when something happens to a family member or a close friend, and all of a sudden you have a new understanding of what's taking place, a new understanding of life is, in general, and, and you want to know a little bit more about what's going on. And that has been my findings throughout the time that I've been pastor here. And by the way, September the 1st will be 20 years as, as associate and then co and now pastor and uh, God has allowed me to hear a lot of questions through those 20 years and as a result this series has popped out of it today we start with a question that um, I think will bring us to some very interesting thoughts and, I, and in fact I think we're gonna see these kinda line up together these three questions line up together we start with one that may be very, very familiar to some and yet may be very unfamiliar to others. And that is, okay, when will saved people settle the sin debt? When will saved people settle their sin debt? Now, in order to understand the question a little bit better, let's talk through different aspects of it, okay? So first of all, what are we talking about when we talk about sin? We talk about sin, we are talking about rebellion against God or disobedience to God. You know as well as I do that God laid out a series of commandments and he said, here's what I want from you, here's what I expect from you. I expect for you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. I expect you to have no other gods before me. I expect you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I expect you not to lie, not to steal, not to kill, not to bear a false witness, not to commit adultery, and on and on and on the commandments go. Okay, so we know that the commandments are there and we know what God expects from us. And he said, in order for you to enter into eternal life you must keep my commandments perfectly but there is a big big problem with that and the problem is found in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 where God tells us we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard We've all sinned. We've all broken God's commandments. And as a result of breaking the commandments, we also fall short of the standard that's required for us to get to eternal life on our own. That standard being perfection. So then with this breaking of God's law, with the problem of disobedience to God comes a payment or a debt that we are responsible to pay God. And unfortunately for us, that debt is death. Not just physical death, which certainly is involved, but we're also talking about eternal death, eternal separation from God in a place called the lake of fire. And so this debt weighs heavy upon us. And we think about that as believers, okay, well this debt, this sin debt is crushing, it's so heavy, when am I responsible to pay that debt back? Because I understand that as a child of God, I'm going to go to heaven, not to the lake of fire. And what a blessing it is to know that that is absolutely the case. That 
that in fact the answer to this question is that the debt's been paid for me. Can you imagine that? Such a heavy debt. And one steps in and says, you know what? I'll take care of that for you. I'll take care of it. But in fact, that's exactly what Jesus did on our behalf. The Bible says that Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and carried the sin of the world upon his shoulders. Carried the sin of the world upon him. And there on the cross of Calvary, the judgment and wrath of Almighty God for our sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ. So that I will not face my sin again. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I, I picture this white-haired old man sitting down writing it. And I, I picture him thinking back to the days when he persecuted the Christians. When he hounded some to death. When he threw others into prison. When he allowed others to be stoned and brutally executed. I picture him thinking back to the times when he left children as orphans. When he left wives as widows. And I picture him thinking of what Jesus Christ did on his behalf. And with tears in his eyes saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A sin, and they are many. Paul said, I am the, the most wicked of all sinners. My sin, which are many, have been forgiven. The debt has been paid in full. And there is now no condemnation upon me. So when will believers pay the sin debt? The fact of the matter is that the debt has been paid in full for us. This then brings us to the second question. The second question I believe is going to take us a little further into this event of death and that is well what happens to believers after death what happens to believers after death now we've we've walked through the very first part of this in that we know that there's a separation there's a separation that takes place at death where the body stays here the body which is the tent for the soul and the spirit the the dwelling place for the soul and the spirit stays here that's what we see at the funeral the body is left behind and the body begins to decay and it begins to go back to the dust from which it was originated and the Bible tells us that the soul and spirit though leave the body at the time of death and are ushered into the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The separation takes place. But then what? Okay, then what takes place? What happens for the believer following that? Now I'm not going to try to take you through all of eternity. Uh, we would be here quite a while if I tried to tell you everything that happens throughout all of eternity. In fact, I would probably end up quite a liar because I don't know what happens in all of eternity. But I do want to walk you through an early part that the Bible refers to. And I know that some of this involves opinion. I'll try to tell you if it's my opinion uh, I'm going to try to elaborate on some of these thoughts and go into what what I believe to take place. 
It may not end up being exactly as I say, but it probably will be. (laughs) Uh, Who knows, right? So at some point following death or, or at some point in the future, there is going to be a reunion that takes place. A reunion of soul and spirit in the body. The Bible says that at some point Jesus will step out in the clouds and will call the dead in Christ to rise and those which are alive will meet them in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. So then there's going to be a resurrection of the body. God is going to reunite the body and he's going to make it much better than it was before because Paul in the Corinthians says that the body is corruptible now. We know that. From the time we're born, we begin to die. The body begins to die. And when it's placed in the ground or when it's destroyed by fire, whatever happens at the time of death, the body is sent back to dust. But God is going to restore that body, bring it back together, and he's going to form Form it in, a, in an incorruptible fashion. An incorruptible fashion, which means no longer is it susceptible to disease or sickness or death. No longer will pain enter the body. Those of us who are getting a little older, we know how much we can appreciate that thought, right? We'll be raised incorruptible. There will be a reunion of body, soul, and spirit. Soul and spirit that are with Jesus will once again have a home, a a physical body home. And we will be taken to meet the Lord in the air. Those who are alive at that time when the rapture occurs will be changed in the moment of twinkling of an eye. They will be incorruptible as well, taken to meet Jesus. And we will forever be with the Lord. Now following this comes a time that is talked about in Romans chapter 14. Uh, The judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. Now this is the reason some people are confused about when believers will pay their sin debt. Because there is a judgment seat. A time of judgment for those who are part of the family of God. The judgment seat of Christ. So then what is involved in the judgment seat of Christ if we're not going to pay or be called into account for our sin? If the sin is totally paid for, the Bible says it's removed as far as the east is from the west, it will never again be reunited with me. I will never face that because that debt has been paid. If anyone happened to bring up, that, well, look at what this idiot's done in his life. I mean, you just look at all the sin, the way he's embarrassed God. Jesus is going to step up and say, but wait a minute. I paid for that already. It's paid in full. That debt's paid. So then what's going to take place at the judgment seat of Christ? With the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says that I will be judged for the deeds done in my body, whether they be good or bad. In other words, the motives of what I'm doing even here today will be judged by Jesus Christ who knows my motives. There are a lot of times when I see somebody do something and I say, I know why they're doing that. I don't know. I may have a suspicion. My suspicions may prove to be accurate. But I don't really know their heart. There have been times when I knew exactly why someone was doing something and then come to find out, no, I didn't have a clue. I was so wrong. But Jesus knows. In just a little while, we're going to take an offering. 
And some here today are going to give their offering in accordance to obedience of God. And they're going to give with cheerful, grateful hearts for what God has done for them. And Jesus, who knows the motive of the heart, will someday at the judgment seat of Christ reward that deed. There are others who will not give in obedience. They will not give God's way. They will not give with thankful hearts or they won't give at all. Whatever the case may be, if God's telling us to do it and we don't do it, then we're talking about disobedience. And someday they will stand before God and that deed will also be judged because God knows the motives and the intents of the heart. Someday when we stand before God, our presence here today, God will look and see. He knows the motives of why we're here. He'll say, no, they're just, they're just here just because they're trying to fulfill a religious obligation or they just want somebody to see them here. And it will be judged. Or they're here because they truly want me to be glorified. They truly want to express gratitude to me. And it will be judged. Now, the Bible tells us that these things somehow will be visible to us, the deeds done in our body. That's it's hard for me to imagine, but I've tried to calculate it out, and my opinion is that somehow these deeds are going to appear tangible. I mean, you can actually touch them. You can actually see them. That somehow they're going to be presented before us because the Bible says that they will be seen as either gold, silver, and precious stone or wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and withered grass. Now, wood, hay, and withered grass, we know, for the most part, has no value. I mean, it's not something that you can build upon. This is just the leftovers. This is the worthless part of what's thrown away by the builders. This is what's here. And the Bible says that at some point during this judgment, all of our deeds, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of these things, the wood, hay, and stubble, the gold, silver, and precious stone is going to be passed through the fire. And, of course, we know what happens when the intensity of the fire hits the wood, hay, and stubble. It's burned up. And we'll be standing there. If that's the majority of what we have, we're going to be standing there looking at our life's work destroyed. It's gone. Nothing to show for it. While others will be standing there looking at the gold, the silver, and the precious stones that is representative of their life's work. And they will see it pass through the fire, not to be destroyed, but to be purified. Even the, the parts of what we did that had the wrong motive, because we're not perfect, the parts that we did that had the wrong motive will be burned up and the gold, the silver, and the precious stones will be purified and will be brought back out. The wood, hay, and stubble, gone. Never seen again. The gold, silver, and precious stone brought back out. And I believe will be given to us. Some will be standing with small handfuls. Others will be standing with more than they could possibly carry. Not that we would stand there and say, oh, wow, now look at what I've got. I mean, look at all my treasures. Because what takes place in glory is that we are glorified, which means we have no needs. We have no desires for more because we have everything we could possibly want. And so it's not that we're trying to hoard this. We're trying to gather it and say, where am I going to hide this so nobody can touch it? But I believe that which is brought back to us then is taken to the marriage of the Lamb and presented to Jesus Christ where we say thank you thank you
This represents everything I did for you that was of value. It represents my work and my service to you. My work and my service to your church. It represents my heart. Thank you for what you've done for me. Now I mentioned the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb is God using words that we understand to help us to relate and understand events that will take place later. The marriage of the Lamb, when Jesus Christ and the Bride of Christ, the Church of Christ are joined together, that He then becomes a continuous protector of us, that He is the husband of the Bride. This, this marriage takes place, and, and, and in heaven then comes the marriage feast. You say, now what in the world would a marriage feast look like? And, and I got to tell you, I don't know because we're talking about millions and millions of people. I mean, I, I don't know how, how that happens. I've seen feasts. In fact, uh, uh, Zach invited some of us here to go to the, the business leaders' prayer breakfast in Chattanooga. And thousands of people were there, and they were feeding them. And I looked out, and I thought, Wow. What organization must be required to pull this off? And then as I was thinking about that in relationship to our study, thinking about how millions and millions and millions of people are served at the feast. And man, it, it kind of blows my mind. Now, while this is taking place in heaven, on earth is something known as the tribulation period. For those who have been left behind uh, are facing the wrath and judgment of Almighty God. It's a horrible time. If you read the book of Revelation and you get a commentary to go along with it to help you understand what's taking place, you see that this is a horrific period on earth, especially the last three and a half years. Following this seven-year period, which I believe all of this that's going on in heaven, the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage feast of the Lamb, that this is taking a seven-year period of time as well. Following that, the Bible says that the, the Antichrist gathers the armies of the world to go and destroy Jerusalem or destroy Israel, the people of God. And at that point, the Bible says that Jesus mounts a white horse in heaven and the armies of heaven are following him on white horses. Excuse me. And that involves us. And we are part of the armies of the Lord. And we're following him down to the earth. And the Bible says that all men will see him. They will watch him coming. And they will think to themselves, okay, we're going to destroy Israel. Let's just take care of him while we're at it. He's the one that's caused this anyway. And so they had turned their attention to fight Jesus Christ. But the Bible says with the simple word of his mouth, his enemies are destroyed. That he simply speaks a word and they die before him. It's the battle of Armageddon. Now this is followed by a thousand year reign of Christ. 
where Jesus Christ will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. That is followed by, once again, those people of the world who were born during this thousand-year period do not come to know Christ as Savior, even though they've watched Him rule and reign the thousand years of perfect peace. And they gather once again in order to destroy Jesus Christ. The Bible says that they gather around Jerusalem where Jesus is positioned. God looks upon this rebellion and causes fire to fall from heaven and devours the enemies of Jesus Christ. It's a horrific time. Now this is followed by the great white throne judgment in which everyone who has denied Jesus Christ in life will stand before Jesus Christ and they will see books open they will understand that their name is not written in the book of life and they will hear the dreaded judgment passed upon them depart from me you workers of iniquity I never knew you you will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth now in my mind I cannot envision a more horrible setting I'm talking personally, I can't envision a more horrible setting because at that point there are going to be people who I had an opportunity to influence their lives and did not. I had an opportunity to share Christ with and did not. I had an opportunity to invite them to come to a caring church like this where they would hear about Christ and I didn't do that. And I'm going to hear Jesus Christ turn to them and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And they're going to point at me and say, but he never told me. Never told me. You say, well, I don't know that we're going to be there. Well, the Bible says that we will forever be with the Lord. Now, to me, that means that we will not leave his presence. That we will be with him where he is, we will be. So that we will be there at the judgment seat, or excuse me, the great white throne judgment. And we will see this taking place. Now this is the reason in part one or two of this particular study on death, I told you that I don't believe that the wiping away of the tears will take place until after this time. I don't think it's possible Maybe if the memory's already been wiped away or whatever, maybe. But I don't think it's possible otherwise for us to stand and watch friends and loved ones be cast into the lake of fire without the shedding of tears, without the heartbreak. I don't think it's possible. So I believe after this has occurred that time will come when Jesus wipes away all tears from our eyes. The memories will be changed. I don't know how that looks. Once again, there's somewhat of opinion involved in that. And at that point, we will begin eternity. Eternity. I want to stop there because I think eternity involves us serving God. How that looks, I don't know. Some people think, well, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm just going to float around on a cloud and play a harp. I think you're going to be surprised when you find out that there's a lot more to it than that. 
But I do want to bring us to this third question. And please allow me, once I, once I tell you the question, to explain why I'm asking it the way I am. There's a lot of questions involved in this third one. And so I just want to kind of walk you through the process of why I'm bringing you to this particular question, okay? So the, the question itself may not make sense at first, but just hang on a little bit and let me walk you through it. Question number three, your third fill-in, is how can I possibly think that I, will, uh, that I will live in heaven for all eternity? How can I possibly think that I will live in heaven for all of eternity? Okay, so let's walk through this. Eternity. It's a long time, right? I mean, you think about what eternity represents. Time cannot quantify eternity. I mean, our, our thoughts of time being a hundred years is a long time, right? A thousand years is a long time. Uh, the, we believe the world has been in existence for six to ten thousand years. Okay, so if it's six to ten thousand years, man, that's forever, right? <laughs> no, it's almost like a second in eternity. Maybe a part of a second. And when we work our way through 10,000 years of seconds in eternity, eternity is just beginning. Okay, so we're talking about something that our minds can't really tie into here. Maybe yours is better than mine. I, I wouldn't doubt that. I can't figure this part out. Eternity, that's a long time. No end, no no finality. It just goes on and on. Okay, so in my mind, I, I think about how I am. I know that when I'm tempted, that uh, I'm one who easily gives in to temptation. Once again, maybe you're not so easily swayed, but, but man, I'm, I'm just not a very perfect person. And in my mind, when I get to heaven, if I'm like Satan, who was tempted to want something more, and he said, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise my place higher than God's, and I'll receive the glory that God got. He was tempted. He saw something he wanted, and he gave in to that temptation, sinned against God, and was therefore kicked out of heaven. If I'm no better than Satan, then why in the world would I think that I would live in eternity forever? I think that's a fair question. I think based upon the response and the questions I've received from people, I think that a lot of people are wondering, how could I possibly expect to live there forever? I mean, Adam and Eve were perfect, right? And yet they were tempted. They saw something that they desired, something they wanted. And what did they do? Well, they gave in to that temptation and therefore were kicked out of this perfect environment known as the Garden of Eden. So then why would I think that I could possibly live through that and stay in heaven for all of eternity? Jesus was tempted, right? Man, he came to this earth and, and he was tempted. He, but remember about Jesus, because herein we find the answer to this whole thing. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Being fully God, Jesus possessed something that Satan or Adam and Eve did not possess. And that is the glorification process. Jesus had been glorified. He was glorified in heaven. He will be glorified again, the Bible says, when he returns 
He had been glorified. We talked about this glorified body. It means that it has no needs. It will not face death or sickness or disease. It has no need for anything else. It has everything that it can possibly want. The same is true for Christ. He had everything he could possibly want. He could see everything very clearly. So that after fasting for 40 days, very hungry, very weak, Satan came and offered something to his flesh which had not been glorified that his flesh very much desired. Turn the stones into bread. You remember what Jesus said? He said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What he was indicating was, I've already heard from God and there's something more he desires from me. And while my flesh really wants this, my flesh could really get into some bread right now, there's something more important and that's being obedient to what God wants from my life. So while the flesh desired it, glorified body of Christ, a glorified person of Christ rather, knew that there was something more important, more valuable, and so there was no need in his life for that. Satan then took him to the top of the temple. He said, why not just throw yourself off? And the angels will catch you because the Bible says that you won't even dash your foot against a stone. The angels will be there for you. And how would that appeal appealed to Jesus Christ? Jesus would have seen it and he would have said, okay, wow, where are the religious leaders? They're here at the temple. So if I throw myself off, the angels are going to catch me. They're going to know that I am, in fact, who I say I am, and they're going to follow me. That would have appealed to his flesh. But the glorified person of Jesus Christ looked at the situation and said, you are not to tempt the Lord your God. No, there's something better in plan, in the plan that God has for me. Satan took him to the top of the mountain, showed him all the peoples of the world. And he said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give them all to you. To the flesh of Jesus Christ, it would have appeared, hey, this is my way out of the cross, right? I don't have to go to the cross if all of these people are belonging to me. And I believe it was a legitimate offer. I believe that Satan had the power and the authority to do that. Otherwise, Jesus would have said, no, you don't have that authority. So the flesh would have been desirous, but the glorified person of Jesus Christ said, no, you are to worship the Lord your God and him only are you to serve. There's something more involved here, something more at stake. Romans chapter 8, write that reference down, specifically verse 30. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 tells us that essentially Christ has glorified us. That we will realize that glorification when we get to eternity, when we get to his presence. We will not be tempted. We will not sin in heaven because there is no need in our lives. Now, to add to that, write this reference down as well. It may be on your notes already. I can't remember if I added it or not. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 27. Revelation 21 and verse 27 says this, speaking of heaven, 
There shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing that causes defilement, abomination, or a lie will enter into heaven. What does temptation do for a lot of us? Causes abomination, defilement. How will I possibly be able to stay in heaven for all of eternity? It's because God has given me a glorified body. I'm like Christ when I get to heaven. And because there will exist no temptation there and no sin will enter into this place we refer to as heaven. So then if I take all of this information that's been given this morning, what am I going to do with it? I think three things come to my mind. Number one, as I said last week, I think it ought to make us so grateful. I mean, to just think about the fact that the sin debt has been paid for us. Think about the fact that, that Christ took that upon himself on Calvary and paid for it in full. It, it, to me, is just something that ought to cause me to stop and say, God, thank you. Thank you. And so I think that it ought to cause us to be so grateful. But I think, number two, it ought to also cause us to, to remember those who are around us and to share Christ with them. Share Jesus Christ with others who we know may or may not know who Jesus Christ is. It ought to cause us to want to go beyond the possible embarrassment. To go beyond the possible backlash of someone being aggravated or upset at us. So that we tell them about something that is eternity changing for them. That being Jesus Christ. Then finally, for those who do not know Christ as Savior, I think, if anything, what this information ought to cause you to do is say, you know what, I'm, I'm missing out on something. And what I'm getting in return is nothing that I want. Maybe cause you to come to know more about who Jesus Christ is today. You say, well, how do I do that? It's going to be real simple. Just a minute, the instrumentalist will come and Jason will come to sing. And it's just going to open up a time of invitation where we invite you to respond to what Jesus is telling you to do today. If you want to know who Christ is, then the invitation is really simple. Just make your way to the aisle that's closest to you at that time and come and meet me at the front. And we'll have someone trained in God's Word show you how you can know Jesus Christ as your Savior right now. We'll show you God's plan of salvation for your life. If you'd like to know more about that, no cost, absolutely. We're not asking you to join anything. We just want you to know who Jesus is. And so if you want to know more about Him, then you come and meet me here at the front. If God's leading you to be part of our church family or... If he's leading you to, to be obedient to the matter of baptism, you come and see me as well. If you need to pray and you want someone to pray with you, you stop and see me. If you just want to pray by yourself, just come and find a spot and do that. However God's working in your life, will you be obedient to him right now?